you have a Bible, you can make your way to the book of James. We're in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. This morning, we're getting back into our series. Um, If you ever read through the New Testament letters, church problems can be specific and they can be general. I mean, you're reading through a book like 1 Corinthians and he's talking about some very specific issues that that church was dealing with. Application for all of us, yes, but direct, specific to them. Other times, it's much more general, much more broad. In this passage today, we're, we're reading some issues that sound very specific for those people. And then we realize that James didn't write to one church. He wrote to a whole region and a whole bunch of churches that would hear this. And that means that these problems are all of their problems. And really, that means that these problems are all of our problems. And so let's read it and remember that into all of our problems, we have a God who speaks to us. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come now to what is certainly a difficult passage, pointed, we pray for the humility to hear. Um, Help us to humble ourselves so that we can hear how we need to be humble. In all of this, would you give us the help of your spirit uh, so that we can have ears that can hear and hearts that respond in faith. Uh, We thank you for the grace of hearing what's true and of being warned. And we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. I know I'm late to the party on this, but uh, I finally watched the documentary, The 30 for 30, produced by ESPN on Lance Armstrong. I know it's been around for a while. His story's very public. Don't need to rehash it, but you know the bullet points. Um, America's most famous cyclist, seven-time winner of the Tour de France, life-threatening cancer survivor, founder of a gigantic organization that changed the face of cancer research and support across the world, and a gigantic liar, right? That is the story of Lance Armstrong. Um, Used performance-enhancing drugs his entire career, lied about it over and over, dug in and dug in and dug in and dug in to the point where when he finally admitted that he did it, It was explosive, a shock uh, to those who followed his career. But the really interesting thing is that years after all this, 
in the documentary, at the end of it, he says this sentence. I wouldn't change a thing. So the apologies aren't really true because he wouldn't change a thing. There's wreckage in his family at this point, wreckage in his finances, multiple lawsuits all over the place. His organization is greatly diminished, gave up all of his victories, harmed his friends. Anyone who tied their wagon to his star got burned, and he wouldn't change a thing. Now, um, I bring that up because it's public and it's clear. Here's a guy that we all hear this and we say, man, that's bad. That's a prideful guy. It's true. He is a prideful guy. He probably would say that. But the reason I bring it up is because lest we judge Lance too harshly, which we really, really want to do, especially if you followed his career and watched this documentary and anything else about his life, um, his life in big public letters on display is our life in in miniature. Um, Our pride will destroy everything. Your pride and my pride will bring absolute and utter wreckage to everyone we love, everything that we've tried to do, everything that's right and good in the world. Our pride will crush it if left unchecked. That's what James wants to make very, very clear to us in this passage. Um, It it doesn't have to be this way. And, And here's James' point. Before your pride destroys everything, Humble yourself. That's the big point. And so what we're going to talk about as we walk through this passage is how pride destroys, grace that restores, and then what humility demands. If you're an outline person, there's there's your outline. And let me just say this. This is the week after uh, Easter. Uh, um, We kind of went from a great high. This one's going to feel different. Um, You could hear it in the passage that we read. It's pointed. It's heavy. And... um, just, just know that we know this. Uh, didn't plan it this way, but um, it's a good word for us, especially coming after an Easter Sunday where we have celebrated the good news. And now this is a place where the good news that we celebrated gets all in our business, which is kind of appropriate this side of heaven. So let's talk about our pride and how it destroys us. This will be fun. Where people gather, fighting and quarreling follow, right? Doesn't matter if it's a rotary club or a church. When people get together, they will fight and they will quarrel. This is what James talks about in verse 1. He just talked about how they're supposed to be peaceful people. And then he says, so what causes these quarrels and fights among you? And the words that he uses in the original language are not verbal words. They're physical violence words. And that doesn't mean that they're going around having fist fights in the church parking lot after the services. They, they, maybe they were. But what he's trying to tell us is that their quarreling needs to be understood with the same level of seriousness as a physical altercation, right? The, the problem is that neither they nor we see it as horrific as it really is. We, we, don't, we don't think of it that way. We don't think that throwing a verbal bomb is as serious as throwing a hand grenade. We don't think that way. We don't really believe Jesus when he says that um, murderous anger on your insides against your brother is as bad in his eyes or as serious in his eyes as physical murder. We don't believe him. And James wants to underscore, no, 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 this, you have to reevaluate everything in light of God's economy. This is how he sees it. 
And, and his question really is, so these horizontal wars, these quarrels and fights, where do they come from? He says it's their passions that are at war in their bodies. In other words, what's on their insides is making its way onto the outside. And so they want something they can't have. And to get it will make them do anything, even become murderous. Uh, th- these, these impulses, if left unchecked, will lead to, to murder. This is his point, is the, the, same, the same impulse that makes you quarrel with a person is the exact same impulse that will lead you to physically murder a person. That the root and the fruit are inextricably tied together. That, that's what he wants us to understand. And so when they covet and can't get what they want, they fight. What, what are the roots of all this covetousness, murderous hatred, quarreling, fighting? He kind of gets us there in verse 6 when he says, God opposes the proud. You want to know where all of this horizontal chaos comes from? It, it is the pride of, of humans. And what is the essence of pride? Here it is. Pride says this. At the center of the known universe is me. At the center of everything is me. And you know what, you know what that means? I better get what I want. And I need to get what I need. And I'm entitled to get what I deserve. And when that is the controlling influence of your life, all of your desires get disordered and, and rearranged and twisted up to pursue that one great end. Uh, so we covet, we fight, we lie, we slander. Why? Because the ends justify the means. I need to get what I want. That, that is horizontal chaos and destruction. That's what our pride produces. But, man, that would be bad enough. It gets worse. But wait, there's more. James tells us there's a problem on the vertical side, too. When we're prideful, even our prayers are messed up. He says, sometimes you just don't pray. You do not have because you do not ask. Have you ever met a prideful person who would say, you know what I'm killing it in right now is my prayer life. I mean, I'm just, it is rich and deep, and I'm asking the Lord for everything. No, no, no. To pray requires a certain level of humility. What are you saying when you pray? I can't, would you? That's what you're, that requires a level of humility. And so he says, some of you are prayerless. You need to ask. Other times he says, you do ask. And God says, no, because you ask with the wrong desires to spend it on your passions. He says, to get the thing that you want. Why do you get the, why do you pursue the thing you want? Because at the center of the universe is yourself. Now, again, we think that's bad. Is it that bad? I mean, the heart wants what it wants, right? And again, James wants them to see what this really is in God's eyes. And he uses a phrase that is just, frankly, shocking to us. This is to the church. And in verse 4, he says, You adulterous people. What he's saying is that they have been given to mar- in marriage to Christ. And every time they covet what isn't theirs that he hasn't given, they are cheating on Jesus. Every time they pursue their passions and desires, every time they have these horizontal battles and quarrel, they are being spiritually adulterous. That's shocking. Pride gets in the way of our relationship with God. Not only would we not depend on him, not only might we co-opt him to try to get what we really want, we might even, in a twisted, messed up way, we could even use him to get what we really want. And in James's terms, we would use him to get another lover. That's what he wants us to understand is happening. 
So the, the root of murder is tied to murder itself. The spiritual roots of adultery are tied to adultery itself. All of this leads to actually something worse. Look at verse 4. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Obviously, when he says the world here, he means it negatively. This is not go to the nations and preach to them the gospel, affirming the goodness and beauty in the world. This is the corrupting influence of a fallen, broken, messed up culture that transcends time and, and uh, geography. And he's saying if you fall in love with the world, suddenly you are at enmity. And that word means murderous hatred with God. That means that it is impossible to be friends with the world, at peace with its corruptions, asleep to its power, comfortable and warm in its bed, finding satisfaction and meaning and substance from it and not from God. It is impossible to have those things and not find yourself at enmity with your creator. Um, The world hates God. If you cozy up to the world... You shouldn't be surprised if you wake up one day and you hate him too. So, so often, and this is happening in the church too, so often we think that the reason that people are leaving the church and flocking away from it is because they come up with these theological reasons why they can't believe the New Testament or the Old Testament anymore. They have these issues that they can't work through intellectually. When in reality, it's that, no, actually we love the world and we've been building this relationship and friendship with the world for years And suddenly, one day, cold, passive indifference to God turns into full-blown, murderous hatred of God. That's the path. It doesn't happen overnight. You don't just wake up one day and not like God. You slowly let your heart attach to what's not him. And then one day, you wake up and you hate him. What is all this? Destruction. What pride produces. It happens horizontally. It happens vertically that if I'm on the throne of my life, I'll rip people apart to get what I want, and I'll become God's enemy if I need to. And I'll let my worst impulses and passions go free, and destruction will follow. So let's close in prayer, right? Um, You may be here this morning, and if you're honest, you've created that kind of destruction. You see the casualties that you've left in your wake. It's also the case that you may be here and and you've been on the receiving end of those kinds of things, that other people in your world have fought and have had quarrels and conflicts and fights, and you have been hit by shrapnel, Um, especially if you grow up in a family that's just where mom and dad are always blowing up. You're going to get hit with some shrapnel. So you're experiencing the destruction of human pride. Um, But the, the interesting thing about the Bible is that as much as it will have things to say to us, about how to handle what others have done to us sinfully. And that is true. It also wants to address how we respond to those things sinfully. So we receive shrapnel, and then sometimes we turn right around, and we pull a hand grenade of our own, and we toss it right back into the mix. We add to the chaos. That's what James wants to address. There are other passages that get to what to do when you feel like you've been harmed. This is a passage for those who, if they were brutally honest, would have to raise their hand and say, I've never been wrong, ever. None of us would ever say that. Or would we? Right? Um, This is the person who says, I will defend myself at all costs. I'll never admit a wrong. 
And if I have to go down with the ship, I will. That's not special. That's not just Lance Armstrong. That is the default position of the human heart. That's who we are. We defend ourselves at all costs. We assume we're always right. This is what James wants to to expose to us. Is it possible that we have fallen in in love with the world in ways that we can't even see it? Is it possible that we could be charged with spiritual adultery? How do you know? What's the diagnostic for that? Here's the question that we need to ask. What do you love most? What is it that you love and want most? Whatever that is, is what you will bend your life trying to get. And if it's something other than God, the results could be catastrophic. Um, author James K.A. Smith wrote a book called You Are What You Love. And he, he's very helpful because he says that most of us think that our real problem is that we don't have enough information. And so when we deal with problems, if I'm in an interpersonal conflict or if I've got an issue at work or there's a problem, if I can get the right level of information, then I can just apply it and fix it and everything is going to be right again. And it's true that we need good information. That's not false, right? No one's going to argue that point. But he's drawn from St. Augustine, who's drawn from Scripture, and he's saying that, the no, 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 the thing that drives all of your behavior the thing that makes sense out of all your actions, the thing that makes sense out of the way we treat relationships, it it has everything to do with what we love, not with just what we know or don't know. Augustine begins his, uh, early in the Confessions, he has this famous prayer that we say here often, you have made us for yourself. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O God. Implied in that prayer is that we're always after something. And it produces a restlessness until we find our rest in God alone. Um, Do you see that? What do you love? What do you want most? Do you see casualties that you've produced? Do you see casualties in your spiritual life? And if you're here and you're not yet a Christian or you're just making your way back to church, um, great Sunday to show up for the first time. Welcome. These are hard things to hear. You know, one of the things that is great about the Bible is it just doesn't have any interest in sugarcoating things for us. Um, If you were going to write a book and try to delude a bunch of people into buying into your thing and getting them to believe it, you would not write the Bible. Because the Bible constantly comes to us and says, most everything about you is absolutely wrong, right? So either they just fundamentally misunderstood human nature and have tried to appeal to, you know, whatever this is, or, or maybe it's true. Um, left to ourselves, our pride will destroy everything. That's why we can't have nice things. Would you ever admit that? If you will, uh, there is hope. Because the next thing that we see, and it's really a strange meeting of two ideas. We're talking about the destruction of horizontal relationships and, and enmity with God. And then James says, Something about grace, let's talk about that for a second. Let's talk about grace and how God's grace restores everything that we destroy. Verse 5 is complicated. This will be a little lesson in hermeneutics for a second. It's it's difficult because it's hard to translate. Not every passage in the New Testament is hard to translate. This one is. That means you shouldn't build a doctrine out of it by itself. Just so you know, that's where cults come from. They take one weird passage and they make a doctrine out of it. That's not what we want to do here. 
Good reasons to think that the ESV translation in verse 5 is, is true. There are some who disagree. But um, if, it, if the ESV is right, it's saying that the scriptures have a theme about the goodness of God's jealousy. And he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. That means that we, we are embodied souls. And again, if this is correct, God is jealous over our souls in the good sense. He wants us for himself. Right? He, he uh, doesn't want to share us with the world. He's the proper jealous husband who's rightly jealous. And his jealousy, instead of, instead of causing him to blow up in anger and judgment, as ours typically does, causes him, in verse 6, to, to give more grace. Uh, and by the way, if the other translations are correct, and I'm not going to run through the options for you, but if, if they're correct, uh, the driver is still verse 6, that in our sin, in our spiritual adultery, when we have become friends with the world, God gives more grace when we don't deserve it, which is the nature of grace, that in the middle of the moment when we deserve him to turn away from us, he comes toward us. He gives us his favor when we've earned disfavor. He gives us kindness when we have earned his justice. He doesn't let us stay with our adulterous spouse. He doesn't, whatever form that takes. He doesn't allow us to remain at enmity with him. He comes after us. He gives us more grace than our sin can even withstand. More grace than we can even resist if we're his. And that's an important distinction. We need to understand that James is writing to the church, not to the world. J James is, is speaking to those who are already Christ's by faith. To those who have already experienced the grace of God in, in salvation, in justification. Uh, those who have been humbled to see their sin and their need for Jesus, their need for a substitute, their need for a righteousness that's not their own. Those who've already been humbled to see that. Because James then quotes Proverbs and says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, if he says that and he's writing to non-Christians, here's how you could misconstrue that. If he's speaking to non-Christians, that could be interpreted, look, if you remain proud, God is going to come after you. But if you, if you will find it within yourself to humble yourself, God will give you his grace in response. Do you, do you see how strange that is? That if you can just find it within yourself to humble yourself, then you can get God to show up and, and give you his grace. That changes everything, not to mention contradicts the rest of the scripture. But it's not written to non-Christians. It's written to Christians, right? It's written to people who already know him and who have earned nothing but judgment but have been given the grace of salvation. If that's the case then what he's saying is, as you are tempted with friendship with the world, stay humble. God opposes the proud. He, he disciplines those he loves. And if you're proud, he will discipline you like a good father will. So, so humble yourself. Um, he gives more grace. How does God meet the destruction that we've caused? He gives grace. It's how he restores all things. He gives his presence and favor when he could have just walked away and given his justice. Uh, and in fact, it's always been that way. And you, you may be familiar with the story from the beginning of the Bible. You may not. Our first parents, they have one rule. Don't eat the fruit of that tree. First thing they do, eat the fruit of the tree. Why? Because it looked good, sure. Because it tasted good, yeah. What did the enemy whisper? You will be like God. 
which means if that fruit looked horrible and tasted like sardines, they still would have eaten it. Why? Because they wanted to be like God. That is the essence of pride. That's what we want. We want to be like God. And so God showed up and killed them and blew the world up and gave up on creation, right? That's what is shocking about that passage. Did you, have you ever thought that he could have? Have you ever realized that? If he's just and he created these people in this world and they turned against him and now they're shaking their fist at the God who made them, he would have been perfectly just to show up and put them out. Right, like a like a like a, a candle, uh, a flaming candle, just just put it right out. He would have been just. And what do we read? Instead, we read, "Adam, where are you?" He goes after them. He goes and finds them. He gently exposes what they've done. It's painful, yes, but he's gentle about it. They can't be deluded. And then he then he makes a promise. Right after their worst moment, I'm going to send one who will come, and he's going to meet that serpent. And when he meets him, he's going to crush his head, though his heel will be bruised in the process. Immediately after people turned away from God. Immediately. That's the first time the the gospel is announced in the Bible. What is that? What's happening in that moment? That is grace. That is God turning toward instead of turning away, which he could have. And not generically. He came with a plan for how to fix it. And the rest of the Bible is the, unwork, or the outworking of that plan. There is not another religion in the world that has a God who comes into the middle of our mess to try to fix it. There's not another worldview or ideology that will remotely give you that kind of hope. And if you're here and you don't believe this, I, my hope that today is that you would walk out at least thinking, I wish that were true. But the, the rest of the scriptures tell us very clearly it, it's true. He came near. Do you believe it? Or do you want God to deal with you on your terms and on your standing? Because if you do, that is perilous ground. We have nothing to stand on. That's just bad news. God gives grace into the destruction that we've caused. Ultimately, by sending Jesus to become as his enemy, though he had no sin, and to die, and to rise on the, third, on the third day. And the enemy, the serpent who laughed and mocked and danced at Jesus' death, the second Jesus walks out of the tomb, receives the mortal blow on his head, crushed. All the wrongs will be made right. That is the gospel. Do you believe it? Because it does take humility to believe it. More than that, it takes humility to keep believing it throughout your life. And that's the last thing that we see here. Humility is demanding. Let's talk about what what James would like to say here. Last point. It's a string of commands. And the first set has to do with, so what direction do you turn when you realize you've been at enmity with God? You have been against him. And he says, well, submit to God, resist the devil, and draw near to him. Um, So this is repentance. And repentance involves turning, not turn from evil to good. Not stop your bad things and start doing good things. But, yeah, stop the bad things and turn to God. Turn to him. And and expect that when you resist the influence of the enemy and turn back to God, he is there to meet you. 
and welcome you. If everything we just said about grace is true, when I turn from evil and turn back to God because of the promises of the gospel, I should fully expect him to meet me and welcome me. And yet you do have to turn to him with intention of change. He says, submit to God. That's the S word. Nobody likes that one. Submit yourself to him, including the parts that were spiritually adulterous. I love the way the shorter catechism says it, the end of the question we confessed earlier, with full purpose of and endeavor after new obedience. It means that every time you become aware of your sin and you turn from it back to God, Lord, have mercy on me. I want to obey you. Help me. Full endeavor after new obedience. And then there are the commands about what to do with the sins you really just committed. He gets into that. Um, let's just take it on the face of it here. He calls them adulterous people. Let's say you're guilty of the sin of, of adultery or lust or something in that category. What does he tell you to do here? He says there are external things to do with that sin, and there are internal things to do with that sin. On the exterior, there are actions to take. Jesus said if, you're, if, you're, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. That it's a physical action, that there's something for you to do. Get a dumb phone, right? We've only had smartphones for 20, 20 years, right? We can do without them. For thousands of years, humans have done without these things. You don't have to have one. Get off social media. You don't have to have that. Whatever it takes to cut off a sinful pattern and get you in a place where you might become healthy, do it. That's what he's telling us. Deal with the exterior. Cleanse your hands, Stop the spread. I was thinking about the, the train wreck in the East Palestine with the toxic, you know, toxic waste that was seeping out into the ground. And, and then they, they got a truckload of it, 40,000 pounds of it, and were hauling it, and the truck wrecked. And so the toxic dirt is now spreading to more dirt. And I thought, man, what a, what a train wreck. There it is. Um, somebody has to stop the spread of the poison. That's the exterior action. All of us are called with our besetting sins. Take an action. Now, if only it were that easy, right? If only we could just stop it. That's why he says, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It's the same word he used back in chapter 1, verse 8. Spiritual adultery is double-mindedness. We need our hearts purified to love Jesus and him alone. And that is going to take work and time we're going to have to commit ourselves to be in a church where we hear the gospel regularly, where we worship regularly, where our hearts and minds are reformed and reoriented to what's true. We're going to have to be in community. Uh, you might have to get a counselor or a discipler or a mentor. And all of us need one or more of those things at points in our lives. Uh, we're going to have to get in a place where we, by the Spirit's work, are slowly changed from the inside over time so that he is making us single Mindedness. Humility demands that we recognize I'm not well and I need help. And, and the last thing that James interestingly says is that we can't laugh it off. This is a weird phrase in verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. If you were here last Sunday, I just made a whole point about how nobody, you know, the Christian life is not this dour, miserable, joyless, gloomy existence. And now I feel like it's contradicting me, right? What is, what is James getting at here? He, he's not asking us to become killjoys. He is talking, though, to the person who doesn't take spiritual things seriously. You know, there's two ways that you can respond to spiritual reality. 
One is that you can be afraid of depth. And here's what happens if that's the case. If you're afraid of this kind of stuff and you don't, like anytime somebody starts to share their life with you and to start getting vulnerable with you, you might crack a joke just to kind of pull us back up to have some air. That's a fear response. I don't want to go any deeper than we are right now, right? Uh, The other is the response of cynicism. And that's the person who says, um, I'm going to say something funny right now because, come on, this is, all, this is all ridiculous, right? I mean, come on, nobody really believes this stuff. You see how you could respond that way? And Paul, James's point is humility demands sobriety. We're going to have to take this stuff seriously. We're going to have to be willing to get in the trenches with each other and realize that this is life and death. Don't be casual with the holy things, right? Don't be cavalier or cynical with things that matter. What's interesting is that the people who take this most seriously tend to be the people who have the deepest joy and the best sense of humor, in a turn of irony. Where's all this leading us? Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. That's the goal. We want to be exalted. Um, But there's an order, and it's death, then resurrection. It's humility, then exaltation. It's cross, then crown. This is the rhythm of the gospel. We read it earlier in Philippians, Avery did in the service, that Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Why does Paul say that? To remind us of the good news. It should humble us that Jesus had to die for us, our sins that bad. And he also says it to remind us of our path. He says, have this mind among yourselves. It's death, then resurrection. Submit to God and resist the devil and draw near to him and cleanse your hands and purify your hearts and be wretched and mourn and weep. Humble yourself and then he will exalt you. Um, What do we get if God exalts us? We get God. That's what we get. At the end of all things, when everything is finally said and done, when all of our life of needing to be humble is is over and we are properly humble, in the end, we get God with our heads lifted up and our hearts fully engaged with no more work and sanctification and growth to be done. We will be complete and with him. That's a great goal. Could that be worth the cost? This is a warning passage. And you know, when you hear a warning, you're supposed to heed the warning. Our pride will destroy everything. Um, So see it. And believe that in the middle of our destruction, God brings his grace all the way to the cross and the empty tomb to make things right. And so by God's grace, do the hard work of humility. In the end, you get God. Pray with me. Lord, would you make the answer to the question, what is it that we love and want most? Would you make the answer to that question for all of us in this room, God himself? Would you you be the object of our love, the very person that we want most? Would we bend our entire life around knowing you, seeing you in your glory, walking in humility before you, 
We're looking forward to the day when you make all things, including us, brand new. Pray for anyone today who has not believed this or is struggling to believe this. Would you give them the grace of, uh, of an increase of faith? Help them to believe things that they found hard to believe before. And uh, help us to walk faithfully before you. And uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing our hymn of response.